You're tuned into Free City Radio here on CKUT 90.3 FM. Um, and uh, we've been hearing some uh, musics uh, from excerpts from Shallow. And uh, that's by Poira uh, Hatami. Uh, and uh, today in the, on the program, we are very lucky to be joined by um, professor and community activist Ted Rutland, uh, who's launching a really important book tomorrow in Montreal called Displacing Blackness, Planning, Power and Race in 20th Century Halifax. This is a book that will be launched in multiple cities uh, here in Canada and is being released uh, by the formidable University of Toronto Press. Uh, Ted Rutland has been working on this book for many years uh, between Halifax and Montreal, and uh, we're very lucky to be joined uh, here in studio by Ted. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Big days tomorrow. Big day. Yeah. Um, so I, I, could could you share with us a bit about this this book and maybe some of the main objectives that you were trying to um, put forward by uh, uh, working on this project. I know you worked on it for many, many years. Yeah, this this book has been a sort of 10-year labor of love and sometimes <laughs> despair. Um, uh, and it began really uh, with the conviction that, that I personally had something to learn from the long history of black struggle against urban planning in the greater Halifax area, and that perhaps um, in, in, in learning this myself, I might have something that other people could learn as well. Um, and so for people who aren't familiar with the very particular geography of Nova Scotia, there's been a large black community in Nova Scotia since the late 1700s. Um, there was slavery in Nova Scotia. So some people are, are descendants of people enslaved in Nova Scotia. But the largest population um, are, are the descendants of two great waves uh, of migration from the United States. Uh, after the U.S. Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, uh, where people who were enslaved in the United States escaped captivity to fight on the British side of those wars and were given land uh, and, quote unquote, freedom in Nova Scotia as a you know, very measly recompense for that, for their efforts. And so what you find in Nova Scotia is that there are around 42 to 47 black segregated communities on the outskirts of white towns and cities. And so there have been sort of seven or eight um, black communities in and around Halifax for almost 200, for over 200 years. And so the fact that, that black communities had land gave them a basis for community life, um, so community development, economic development, religious practice, but it also put them in conflict with urban planning from the get-go. Wow. Um, so the, the state is not particularly good at recognizing the land claims of people of color in general. And so, you know, keeping that land over 200 years has has, uh, has required a struggle. And what I wanted to, what the, what the book is trying to talk about is, it's not giving a history of that, of that resistance. It talks about that resistance, but it's really interested in, okay, okay, if we recognize the black people in, in Halifax have seen urban planning as a source of imperilment and plunder and degradation, then what, what does that say about planning? And so I spent many years in the archives studying the, the files of, of, of planning uh, and trying to understand how did planner, how do planners think about what they're doing? Um, how do they implement their projects? And why is it that time and time again, the result of their work uh, uh, is injustice and displacement for black people? Mm -hmm. You use the term uh, segregation and um, having uh, heard you speak a few times and also seen some of um, 
your your presentations, not just on this subject, but on others. Um, I can hear this term and understand um, from the research you've done why it's accurate. But I'm wondering for listeners, if you could just maybe describe, I know you've visited both the archives, but also physically visited the communities uh, resisting segregation and also displacement from these territories. Can you talk about why you've used this term uh, within the context of, of your book, again, which is called Displacing Blackness, Planning Power and Race in 20th Century Halifax? So a couple of things on that. One is that, um, yes, I visited, uh, you know, many of the communities and, and, you know, have formed friendships and comradeships and learned a lot from people. I mean, the, the book comes from the archives, but it felt important to me personally to, to get to know people in the present. Um, and, uh, you know, what you see is you, you cross a road and all of a sudden you're in an all black community, um, which has the characteristics of racialized poverty in Canada where, you know, in general, the housing, the houses are not in good condition. There aren't a lot of businesses that there's no, and, you know, even North Preston, which is the largest black community in Canada, six or 7,000 people. I mean, there's no, there's no main street, you know? There's a, there's a, there are a couple of small businesses, but they're not, they're not the, the integral functioning communities that people would like them to be. And that's because of state and civil and civil racism. Um, but one thing I guess is I, I, I definitely don't want to give the impression that segregation itself is a problem. Segregation is a problem if these communities want to be desegregated, but it, but in general that, that hasn't been their objective. People I know who live in Preston, for example, they want Preston to be better. I mean, they see it as a, as a, as a great community, which it is. Uh, it needs resources and it needs oppression to stop. But um, historically, Canada, um, because it, it sees racism only existing in the United States, and, and sees racism as being something expressed in forms of segregation has sometimes caused great harm to black communities by trying to end segregation, even though the communities themselves don't want it. And so the famous case of Africville, a black community in Halifax, was destroyed in, 1960, in the 1960s. And the primary reason was because the state wanted the land to do other things on it. But that sort of economic um, objective was paired with a, a seemingly benevolent gesture to desegregate this black community. But the fact is, you know, these white planners wanted to desegregate it and might feel good about themselves for it. But what people were asking for was not desegregation. They wanted water. They wanted, you know, help um, um, upgrading their homes, etc. Yeah. Can, can you can you maybe, um, given the research that you've done, and also, I'm, I'm sure many interviews, um, can you just lay out for us a bit, like the systemic approach from authorities in the Halifax region, but also more broadly in Nova Scotia, as to the the unbalanced allocation of public resources um, that illustrates the systemic racism you're talking about, and how that's impacted, of course, uh, the issues you're addressing in this book. So it's in it's um, in every objective that planning has is is. Um the opposite result happens in black communities and is achieved through the, the those negative results in black communities. So early planning objectives included public, improving public health. And so to, to improve public health, um, uh, installations or industries that were harmful to white, white health were moved from white neighborhoods to black neighborhoods in the interest of public health. What does that mean? 
uh, it means, you know, uh, uh, a polluting industry, for example, uh-huh. will be moved from a white community to a black community in the interest of public health. Mm-hmm. The, the, the implicit understanding there is that only white people really can be healthy because in a racist viewpoint, black people are already Ill, unhealthy and can't become full human beings. So there's no, no use in trying. They're disposable. Mm-hmm. Um, there's efforts to improve the, the, the efficiency of land use. So let's get, you know, let's use land well. It's a scarce resource. Let's mm-hmm. put, you know, lots of people or lots of businesses on uh, high value land, etc. cetera, uh, in the interest of using the land well. Well, what that resulted in is black commu- in black communities is we'll get you off the land because you're not using the land well and we'll put something better, quote unquote, on it. Mm-hmm. Efforts to make, you know, the, since the 1960s, a lot of the imperative in planning is to create more enjoyable, lively urban spaces. And that's the dominant ideology in Montreal, particularly under the Projet Montréal government. But we need to ask, you know, whose enjoyment, whose well-being are we talking about? And if you look closely, what you find is it's implicitly a sort of a white bourgeois or middle class person's enjoyment that is taken as the enjoyment um, that everyone should, should, should want and should be able to have. Um, but and that's achieved by pushing a whole bunch of people who aren't conform, who 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 mess with that sense of enjoyment, pushing them out of the picture. And so all these efforts to create a lively, more vibrant space in Halifax were uh, uh, dev- implemented in spaces where people had recently been working class and black populations had been displaced, and where ongoing practices of racial discrimination kept those spaces white. And so to return the question of segregation. You know, the most segregated communities in Canada are white communities. I mean, you don't, there's no community in Montreal, for example, that we can go into that's like exclusively black or exclusively Latino. There are many neighborhoods that are almost exclusively white. Um, and so, you know, as I'm thinking about racism and urban planning, I'm interested in what happens in black communities. I'm also interested in how places become white um, and, you know, and, and, and how planning invites certain forms of identification in white people. Like when I go to a planning consultation and they're talking about making like these changes in in a street, like they're appealing to me in a certain way. They're like, we're going to create bike lanes. Well, I bike there. We're going to create nice cafes. I like to hang out in a cafe. Like they're appealing to me uh, and people like me. Um, And so part of my argument in the book is that if you feel yourself appealed to by planning, if you feel like planning is doing something good for you, Think about who's left out of that and at whose expense this is going to happen. Uh, uh, this is going to occur. Mm-hmm. So this book, I mean, is centered around uh, research on the contemporary um, realities in the Halifax region. But also, uh, I, I, from what I understand, you're looking at this as an example for systemic racism in Canada, yeah. uh, anti-black racism, particularly uh, as it relates to planning. I'm wondering if you could um, uh, highlight for us a bit more of like the ways that you see systemic racism and systemic anti-black racism as informing uh, urban planning, generally speaking, in Canada, and also the ways in which the Canadian narrative that you mentioned earlier in the program basically uh, removes uh, sort of uh, social political responsibility for addressing this systemic racism that you really focus on in your book. Okay, so I'll, I'll make a, a, a sort of theoretical argument that's drawn from hundreds of years uh, of black scholarship, and that's to say that whenever the state or another institution is talk- talking about improving human life in any way, making people healthier, happier, more productive, uh, in- improving their well-being, we need to ask, you know, 
how are they conceiving of human life? How are they conceiving of, con conceiving of quality of life, of health? And what, what you find is that um, planning, like many other institutions, continually assumes a kind of singular monolithic vision of life, assumes that, you know, that, that improving that kind of life will improve everyone's life. Um, but you look closely and what they're assuming is a white middle class life and often a, a male heterosexual life as well. And so planning might often, um, you know, improve a certain vision of life and damage a whole bunch of other lives in, in the process, you know. And so the, the way that, that that theoretical argument has made, been rendered practical is most visible, uh, is made most visible by groups like Black Lives Matter and its various offshoots in, in Canada, where you can see very clearly that what the police are doing to, to black communities, they're doing in the interest of somebody. And they're doing it in the interest of things that seem like they, they're available to everyone. Like they want to make the streets safe. They want to provide security. I mean, who doesn't want to feel secure? But, like who's, but when we talk about creating security, we know when we look closely that it's particular people who might be um, allowed to feel secure. And that that's going to occur through the creation of great insecurity for various populations. And so I think we can do the same. I'm, I'm influenced a lot, you know, my thinking um, by, by groups, by the long history of black radicalism currently manifest in groups like Black Lives Matter, um, we can see that in planning in the same way. And so every time we, I see planning in, in Toronto, in Montreal, in Vancouver, anywhere, talking about we're going to create well-being, we're going to create a more lively, vibrant neighborhood, we're going to like uh, create jobs, we, need, we can look closely and we'll see that they have a particular understanding of who that is. Um, and the people who don't fit that category, that image, are going to be harmed. And so in Montreal, I'm, I'm presently working the very early stages of a, of a book on Montreal. And a, and a clear example is that in the late 1980s, um, uh, uh, the police started to work with community organizations to use um, tenant protection bylaws to evict suspected drug dealers who were black. And so what you have is that um, people that the police could not arrest were evicted from their homes because the police didn't have the evidence to actually charge them and send them to prison. They would call the city housing authority to have people displaced on the grounds that they were running a drug operation, but not enough evidence. They didn't have enough evidence to actually arrest the people. And so this is a situation where we're, we're using tenant protection laws to violate the tenant rights of, of black communities. And what's really um, perturbing about this is this wasn't the, this idea didn't come from the police. It came from um, tenant rights organizations. So, you know, maybe that's a mistake. Maybe they messed up. But I think we need to ask, what is it about the way that we understand the tenant, the citizen, the sure. human being, that mm -hmm. makes it totally compatible with causing great damage to the lives of tenants, of human beings, of citizens, and actually seems to require that damage? Like, mm -hmm. for my tenant rights to be protected as a white person, some people seem to believe that what I need to feel good as a tenant is for black people to be gone. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we need to you know, think about. There, there's an a ongoing notion that's very dominant within Canadian liberal media. I, I mean, not entirely, but you hear sort of narratives that enforce this concept of the state as a neutral actor, you know, um, and sort of uh, without bias, I guess you could say, when it comes to sort of uh, bureaucratic mechanisms of whether it's urban planning or s statistics or decisions sort of on those levels. Um, now, the reason I wanted to bring this up is um, I'm just wondering if you could 
uh, address the ways uh, that um, it's important to think critically about the notion of the state as, in fact, not a neutral actor. I mean, in terms of the power that is enforced over urban spaces. I mean, I'm thinking about things you mentioned, tenant laws, but also the utilization of permits or uh, the issues around noise complaints and the ways that these laws that are sort of promoted as neutral or sort of enforcing social good are in fact actually weaponized when it when it is deployed in a context of systemic racism. Yeah, I think I think that's really important. And I think particularly since the 1960s, we've seen um, various state institutions, including planning, really remold themselves as apolitical, as, as technical. Um, that's always been a part of the way the state's operated and the way the planning's operated, but I think it's been more important since the 60s. Um, and, you know, the last chapter of the book deals with the way that planning operates in the present in Halifax, and it's the same in, in Montreal, where to, to seem unbiased, seem apolitical, planning will adopt these kind of abstract frameworks for deciding, for example, who gets running water, who gets sewers, who gets sidewalks, who gets parks, who gets public transit. Yeah. Um, but when you look at what happens is transit, water, parks, sidewalks go to white, white suburban communities in the Halifax region and not black communities. And why is that? Well, planners will say, well, we made a decision that transportation resources, public transportation, should be allocated to communities that are closer to the city and that are more densely populated, which seems fine if you don't think about it. But the actual reality of the landscape in the greater Halifax area is that black communities live in peripheral locations and relatively undense and so they don't get public transit. Well, you know, and, but that's not their choice to be there. They were put there. They were forced to live there. Um, and so this seemingly unbiased technical rationality ends up being profoundly anti-black. But if I say this to a planner, they'll say, what, do you want me to treat um, black communities on a in a different way than white communities? My answer is, like, yes, you've been treating black communities differently for two, three, four hundred years. I'd like you to treat them differently. I'd like you to treat them better to make up. Um, you know, for the for that history and the way that the society is profoundly structured by white supremacy and anti-blackness in the present, so which actually requires favoring communities of color, mm -hmm. but that's that the state can't contemplate that because that seems illiberal, um, and white citizens will get angry. We've seen that you know many times. White backlash is is uh, a motor of history that's been well shown in the United States, but it happens in Canada too. Any movement towards equality on the part of communities of color uh, is seen as like overpower seen by white people as like overtaking us become uh, uh, communities becoming more powerful than us having more rights than us when when we're talking about is a modest move towards some kind of equality yeah i mean uh or attempting to take small steps to address systemic racism historically yeah Wow. So there's a lot of uh, work in your book that has taken many years. Uh, we're in studio with a uh, professor and community activist Ted Rutland, uh, who's launching a book tomorrow, Displacing Blackness, Planning Power and Race in 20th Century Halifax. It's being released by University of Toronto Press. Um, so yeah, for anybody listening who'd like to attend the launch tomorrow, um, what can they expect at the launch and uh, and okay. where, where should they go? So if, if people are on Facebook, you can find information about the event just by writing Displacing Blackness into the search uh, window uh, on, on, uh, on Facebook. You can also just type in Displacing Blackness and Concordia into Google. You'll end up on an event page. Um, the event starts at 6 o'clock. Uh, it's in the EV building at, at Concordia, which is uh, 15... 
1515 uh, St. Catharines West. Um, and it's a beautiful space. There's a conference room, there's a, a sort of lounge, and there's a rooftop terrace. Um, at the beginning, we'll have um, uh, um, a, 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 an African Nova Scotian but Montreal-based um, writer named Leslie Carvery reading some excerpts from books that she's written. Her, her um, father grew up in Africville, this community that was destroyed in the 1960s. Her uncle's also a really, really important African Nova Scotian activist. Delise Mugabo, an amazing Montreal-based activist and intellectual, is going to um, offer her reflections on the book, and then I'll say some things about what the book is trying to do. We'll have a discussion thereafter, and then uh, DJ Skin Tone is going to play some records, and we'll hang out uh, uh, on the on the rooftop terrace. Um, and so everyone's certainly welcome. The book's available for sale there, uh, and you know various locations online. Ted Rutland, um, I'd like to to extend this conversation, but the show is coming to a close. Um, thank you so much for being with us. Um, and uh, yes, would really encourage people to check out the book. Uh, thank you so much for coming by the station today. Thanks so much, Stefan. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Ted. We've been uh, speaking with um, professor in the geography department at Concordia, um, Ted Rutland, who has published a book from University of Toronto Press called Displacing Blackness, Planning Power and Race in 20th Century Halifax. Um, this has been Free City Radio here on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. Do stay tuned. The XX Files is next.